I'm happy to open things up for some questions and some dialogue. Good morning, Ajahn. Good morning. This question is about happiness. You said that uh, arahans, they do feel happiness, or different emotions, but they don't get attached to it. In one of your talks, I think the name is uh, Happiness is uh, Suffering in Disguise. But on the other hand, in another talk you say that dana, giving, that also leaves us happy. Okay? Whether it is amisadana, avayadana, or dhambadana. So are these happinesses are all different, or where am I getting confused? Very good question. Uh, you kind of answered the question in asking it, because yeah, there are different kinds of happiness. The happiness that is suffering in disguise is the pleasure of getting what you want. That's a worldly kind of happiness, lokia. If that kind of worldly happiness is grasped, then it will bring suffering with it. Ajahn Chah would compare it to handling a snake, the head being dukkha, the tail being sukha, the head being suffering, the tail being happiness. If you take hold of the head, it bites you straight away. So grasping suffering, then, ah, life is painful and bad. If you take hold of the tail, it doesn't bite you immediately, but very quickly it whips around and, and bites you on the hand or somewhere. So he would use the analogy that the way to catch a snake is you get a forked stick and mindfully you approach the snake from behind and then you place the forked stick just behind the head. So this is what we mean by contemplating dukkha. You go to the dukkha end Contemplating happiness is very popular, but doesn't lead to very good results. <laughs> so the Four Noble Truths starts off with dukkha. <laughs> but it's taking hold of dukkha in a very skillful and particular way. So that placing of the, the forked stick behind the snake's head, then you can bring your hand up from behind, take hold of the snake just behind the head of the neck. It can't bite you. You can carefully put it in a sack, carry it away, and let it go somewhere else safe in the forest. So that's one of Ajahn Chah's many graphic and helpful reminders about how to practice. That yes, we approach the dukkha end of life, but we approach it in a particular way in order to arrive at a quality of, of freedom or safety. So the worldly kind of happiness um, is the happiness of getting what you want, a desire being gratified, any kind of karma raga, sense desire, being satisfied, yes, you know, that feeling of getting what you want. So that's a worldly kind of happiness, and that's the happiness that's suffering in disguise. The other kind of happiness is the lokutara, transcendent happiness, which is the happiness of not wanting anything. <laughs> the happiness of the heart freed from greed, hatred, and delusion. And so that's the happiness of the awakened mind. That's why the Buddha images the Buddha's always got a slight smile on his face, is that the, the happiness of the Buddha is that heart completely free from any kind of wanting. There's a quality of wholeness or, or in the puna in the, or completeness. Puna, P-U-N with a diacritical underneath puna, purna in Sanskrit, purna, fullness or completeness, wholeness. So that's a very different kind of happiness. The happiness of not wanting anything. <laughs> the happiness of the experience of wholeness. The happiness of an arahant is that nothing is missing, nothing is extra, and the sense of no, no boundary, no limit. The behavior will still be limited and bounded, and, and the body still has boundaries and still has weight and still needs to breathe and eat and so on. 
but none of that is experienced as, as burdensome. Both Ajahn Shah, also Ajahn Buddhadasa, um, if I remember correctly, talks quite a lot about these two kinds of happiness. I can remember reading Ajahn Buddhadasa, but uh, he's written so many books. <laughs> it's hard to pin down which one. But if you, if you did a Google search, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, two kinds of happiness, then it'll probably give you all the resources you need. But he spells it out very skillfully, and that they are quite different from each other. One of the, the phrases that you find at Surmog, Ajahn Buddhadasa's monastery, done in quite beautiful calligraphy, is, Oh, what joy to know there is no happiness in the world. <laughs> so that quality of joy is also a way of speaking about that transcendent happiness, or happiness which is independent. Another way uh, Ajahn Sumedho used to talk about it very regularly is happiness is getting what you want, joy is what comes from giving. So the, the emotional tone of generosity, of unselfishness, is an immediate sense of joyfulness. So when you share something, the ego-centered mind was like saying, oh, I don't want to give this away. This is the best. <laughs> this is my apple. You know, and then crossing that barrier of self-concern and saying, here, why don't you have it? Then as soon as you've given it, then oh, I'm so glad I did that. <laughs> so the emotional effect of unselfishness, of letting go of self-view, is that joyfulness, that joyfulness that comes from giving. So that's another of the ways that they're connected. So, yes? Most of my life I've been reading a lot of Persian poetry, and uh, the three people that have had a great influence on me are uh, Atar, Khayyam, and Rumi. So Atar, who's from northeastern part of Iran. Is that the one who wrote the Conference of the Birds? Yeah. yeah. So he lived in the 11th or 12th century and in the Conference of Birds he talks about the seven valleys of love uh, which is a path to uh, self-realization. And the first valley starts with what he calls talab. It's an Arabic word that means desire. It's been translated to quest but the word itself, the meaning of the word is pure desire. And when he talks about in detail of what this desire is, he warns against it that once you step on this path, first there's no return, and you're going to burn in this desire for lifetimes until you cross over to the next valley, which is knowledge. But first step is this desire for this union, for this You've had a little taste of what it can bring you, and you cannot let go of it. And when I first saw that painting in Sistine Chapel in Vatican, <laughs> this poem, like, I, I felt like I saw this poem in, in this painting, <laughs> that there's this desire to have this union, and this desire is what pushes you forward. But the second noble truth talks about how the source of all the suffering is this craving, this desire. The way Attar talks about it, and also Rumi, who was greatly influenced by Attar, is burning in this desire is a path to liberation. Mm -hmm. So this suffering that you're mm -hmm. going to go through, if you take it to the end, if you cross over this valley, there's liberation at the end. But the first step is desire. And I'd like to know 
What is your take on this? Comparing the second noble truth that we have to get rid of the desire craving. And then these guys say you have to actually go to <laughs> yeah. the end. Yes, well, I, I read uh, the Conference of the Birds uh, years ago, one or two different translations, not in Farsi, <laughs> English translations. And uh, also um, I've read quite a number of Rumi's poems, again, in English translation. So along with the two kinds of happiness, there's also two kinds of desire, which is, again is, is uh, extremely useful to understand. The first kind of desire we've talked about quite a bit, tanha, literally means thirst. So craving or thirst, so that almost invariably has some kind of element of self in it. It's agitated, it's self-based. There's, I think, only one place I know in the whole of the Pali Canon where the word tanha is used as a, a wholesome kind of wanting. Every other time it's used, it means a kind of agitated, self-centered craving. So tanha is the troublemaker, the reliable troublemaker. So that's the, the, the cause of, of dukkha, is that tanha. The other kind of desire, chanda, is a necessary condition for enlightenment uh, and for anything. So, and I think I referred to this a few days ago, so that the four bases of success, the idipada, so whether you want to be enlightened, whether you want to cook a meal, or whether you want to rob a bank, you, you need those four. They're kind of morally neutral. So to undertake and to achieve anything, then these qualities are necessary. So the first one, chanda, uh, means interest or enthusiasm, desire, or zeal is a good word in English. That sense, yes, that there's that. So chanda is a necessary condition for enlightenment. The Buddha had to have a lot of chanda to enter upon the spiritual path. And then the second one of the idipada, these bases of success, is virya, energy. So you have to have the enthusiasm, the interest, and then energy, you've got to actually get up and do something. <laughs> and then the third one is chitta, which in this respect means thinking things through. Okay, I want to arrive at the state of union, of, of beatitude, of divine um, realization. So. How do I do it? Where do I go? What's the, the path to take? Uh, so that chitta is thinking things through, and those three work together, chanda, virya, and chitta, interest, energy, and, and reflection, really, uh, consideration. And then the fourth one is vimanksa, the fourth of the four bases of success, and that's the reviewing. Okay, I had that interest, I applied energy, I thought it through. Where did I end up? Where, where did I get to? What's the result of that? That's what helps us to keep going on a good track or, or to turn around if we've taken a wrong path. So that kind of desire is a necessary condition, what they call a sine qua non in Latin, a necessary condition for any kind of achievement or work or anything that we do. So in that first valley, I would say it's a, probably a mixture of <laughs> chanda and tanha. Like if you're starting from the place of ignorance, then it's unlikely that that zeal, that interest, is going to be completely free of self-view, is going to be, um, like, oh, I'm totally fed up with life as I've known it, I've got to get rid of this, I've got to get away from it. So tanha can be mixed in with it as well. But in its essence, chanda is what's needed. There needs to be that enthusiasm to be able to uh, set a direction and to see something needs to be done here, some change needs to happen. C-H-A-N-D-A, Chanda. 
This word thirsty or tanha or the Sanskrit root is Krishna. The Farsi word is teshna. Uh-huh. So it also means thirsty. And I think the word thirsty itself comes from this. Oh, very likely, yeah. Trishna, thirst, the English word thirst, yeah. There's a lot of parallels to the, okay. between English language and uh, Indo-Aryan languages. Yeah. Thank you. So also the chanda can be unwholesome, like the, the, you know, the desire to rob a bank or the desire, it can be karma chanda, the desire for sense pleasure. So chanda itself is morally neutral, but in terms of spiritual practices, it's essential. In the scriptures, there's a dialogue between Ananda and a Brahmin called Unabha, Unabha in Kosambi. This Brahmin has met Venerable Ananda and said, so you know, what is your practice? What, what's, what is the path that, that you follow? And what is it that your teacher teaches? And then Ananda says, our teacher teaches that the abandonment of all desire is the way to liberation. And then Unabha says, well, how can you desire to let go of desire? Like that's a circular argument. That's that's interminable. It's it's you can't desire to get rid of desire. That doesn't work. And then Ananda spells out the the four idipadi. Uh, said, so Unaba, did you have the wish to come to Gosita's Park? Did you have that interest? He said, yes, I did. Okay, having had the interest. Did you get up and make your way here? He said, yes, I did. Did you think about the best way to walk from your home to the park? Yes, I did. Okay, having come to the park, what happened to your desire to get to the park? Well, it's, it's gone, it's finished, it's fulfilled because I, I got here. So did that wish to come to the park have any negative result? No, it didn't. I, I wanted to come to the park, I came to the park, it's finished. And I said, exactly. <laughs> and so that dialogue spells out very clearly in very practical terms, you know, or just in terms of going to the park, how that, how that works. To share a verse of Rumi's, this is probably a bad translation, but uh, I feel one of the most helpful of Rumi's verses and reflections is something along the lines of, for years and years I, I pounded on the door, demanding to be let into the realm of truth, but then I realized that I was knocking from the inside. Well, that's it's very, I mean, it's not a very poetic way of expressing it myself, but the insight is absolutely brilliant. Let me in, let me in, let me in. Why is no one answering? Let me in, let me in. I've been here for years, let me in. I've got to, I got to know the truth, let me in. And, oh, oh, no, no wonder no one's answering. <laughs> I'm already in here. Duh. I'm sure it's much more beautifully expressed in the original. So. Anyway, some more questions, yeah. Ajahn, talking about taking this back with us, say a friend is teasing me and I get pinched when they tease me, I get feel like her teased. And in my mind, I can let this incident pass. Next time I meet them, the same thing happens. Mm-hmm. You know, one suddenly feels angry, and then the other person is like, why are you feeling angry last time? You took it nicely. Even though you feel you've resolved it, you've really not resolved it. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting how these things work. Often, I can't speak for you, I don't know your friend or the details, but um, sometimes if you you are patient (laughs) and if you can restrain yourself from acting on the reactive way, just like being kind of very, very blunt, very short, 
But if you can stay with it just for a little bit, giving a bit of space around it, when the right moment comes to be able to say something like, uh, are you aware that it's quite hurtful when you say that? I know that you're intending it just in a friendly way. You might be intending it to be a gesture of warmth, but it hurts. Are you aware of that? And so if it's coming from a, a kind place in you, that it's not like you don't want them to change for you, but you, you want them to change so that they will not be causing more pain and difficulty around them. So if it's just for me, like don't do that to me, <laughs> then, and it's a reactive thing, I want you to change so that I will feel better, then it's almost always going to have a complicated and painful result. If it's just a little bit more space, like I would like you to change so that you don't cause yourself this difficulty or you don't keep blundering through life and, and causing the same kind of offense. And the fact that I'll appreciate that is secondary. Then, if it's coming from a, a genuine, kindly place within us, then it very often has a, a good result. It takes a bit of restraint. <laughs> I, I was teased a lot when I was a child, particularly in secondary school. Uh, primary school, somehow, it wasn't so much of an issue, but uh, coming into secondary school, I was teased a lot. I was younger than a lot of the other pupils. I had very thick, curly hair, a large nose, sticking out ears. And, uh, and so I was hammered. And just trying to survive in that all-boys boarding school environment is very much dog-eat-dog. Dog. <laughs> that sort of bullying, teasing environment. So I grew up with a lot of that. I certainly had not learned how to deal with it <laughs> at that time. I just survived it till I was about 16 or 17, then people seem to grow out of that. But that is very painful to have uh, your personal characteristics made fun of. And, but if you can come from that quiet place and just wait for the right moment, <laughs> it can be really like that. It's just like a three-second window that says, OK, this is the moment to say something, and then, then it's gone. You know, but just if you wait for the right moment and you just say, are you aware of how... Uh, I know you mean well, but are you aware that this actually hurts when you say that kind of thing? Uh, I'm not angry with you or upset, but just... Are you aware of that? Does that feature... And then if it's coming from that kind of a caring place, then they won't... Usually, they won't just be defensive. Even if they might brush it off on a superficial level and just boop, change the subject, it'll go in. And they'll say... And later on, in a quiet moment, they go, yeah, why do I do that? That's really, actually, that's kind of horrible. <laughs> I need to change that. So sometimes the immediate reaction is the sort of self-defense. But if it has come from a good place in you, then it, it gets through in a mysterious way. I can't guarantee positive results. <laughs> but that's what I would suggest. Yes. Venerable. So everything uh, that we see is when light comes to our eyes. Everything that we hear is when sound reaches our ears. So whatever we see, whatever we experience, has actually happened some time back. So Correct. it kind of gives me a feeling as if we don't partake in any of what happens around us. It's like we are watching a news channel with breaking news splashing every time. Uh, something touched your skin one millisecond back. Mm -hmm. Something happened there 10 milliseconds back. Yes. I'm seeing you in the past. Yes. 
First, it's kind of discomforting that we don't partake in anything that actually happens around us. And it's like fundamentally our nature is different from whatever is happening around us. So I can't formulate it as a question, but it's kind of a <laughs> discomforting thought. So I'm wondering if you would have something. Well, sanya anicca, perception. You've been reciting it every morning. Perception is uncertain, is, is impermanent. It's not reliable. And so that's in, in the Buddha's teaching helps us to put it in the, so the correct framework. Yeah, don't trust any of this. This is all just like a working model. You know, even what we see, like you, you say that my hand moves across, right? From side to side. You're not actually seeing my hand moving from side to side. What's actually registering in your visual cortex is a, a blur. And because you see the hand still, then your brain patches in and says, oh, I know what that is. It's a hand, because it was a hand there, and it's a hand there, so it's still a hand as it goes across. So all the time in our perceptual process, our brain is producing our best guess. When the light is dim, like there's not many lights around here at nighttime, when the light is dim, and then you're, you're making your way around, and you can say, is that a tree? That's oh, a person. No, it's a car. No, it's, it's a tree. And, and in those moments, the brain is saying, it's a tree. No, 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 no it's, not, it's not a tree, it's moving, it's a, car. it's a person. No, no, it's not moving, it's a car. It's kind of creating, and in those moments, you actually see those shapes. Because the brain is guessing to try and come up with a, a working model of what's, what's around. So none of us actually ever perceive reality. And the, the time factor is like looking at the stars. Those are not the stars as they are now. <laughs> They are as they were all those light years ago that the light left them. So Dhamma is timeless. <laughs> it's akaliko. So the present reality, the only thing that is reliably present is the timeless reality of, of Dhamma. The perceptual world, sanya anicca, perceptions are, are uncertain, they're, they're transient. So it goes back to what I was saying about the phenomenological approach of the Buddha. It's like, what is the world? The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. That is the world. And then the end of suffering comes with the end of the world. <laughs> when you see that the, the world is empty, it's insubstantial, it's just a, a set of best guesses to help us so function as living beings in a material world. Then that sense of unreliability, rather than feeling, oh, but it should be reliable. It's like, no, it never was. <laughs> it was only ever a best guess to help get through a day and get fed and be protected and, and stay close to your friends. That's it, really. Uh, so that uh, the, the whole emphasis is putting the field of sensory experience into a proper context. It's not a refuge. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, it's not a refuge. The, the refuge is in the awareness that knows feeling, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. That's reliable. You know, if we've developed the skill of, of embodying that awake, aware quality, the contents of our perceptions are totally unreliable. Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, is a good exploration of that. It starts off with an antiquarian expert being asked to look at a, a statue that was supposed to be an ancient Greek statue and took one look and said, no, it's a fake and couldn't say why they knew it was a fake, but just, just, it's a fake. And then it goes into the whole process of perceptions and, and memory 
Um, it's a very interesting book. And also, it spends a lot of time on uh, witnesses to crimes, eyewitnesses, and the, the, the memory of eyewitnesses. And I, I think I was talking about my walk through England and how everything had moved. The Copper Beach had gone from one side of the road to the other, and the Squires Hill house had moved half a mile outside the village. And so in that Malcolm Gladwell's book, which has got a real, real-world kind of <laughs> impact in terms of people locked up in jail because of witnesses uh, misremembering what they, they saw, that yeah, it was a blue car at the crossroads that came and hit the, hit the red car. I said, no, it wasn't. It was yellow. No, it was blue. I remember it was blue. And then there's the film. No, it's yellow. That unreliability of perception, even though it might be unsettling to the ego, <laughs> it's really useful to, to uh, consider. Another book that I, I think should be required reading for any Buddhist meditator, uh, in English anyway, is uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. He's a neurologist uh, and psychiatrist uh, working in New York. And, it's a, and the whole book is filled with instances of how the perceptual process goes wrong. The title story, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Thought things went seriously wrong in his, his perceptual field. <laughs> and he really did mistake his wife for a hat. Um, these things can happen. It's unsettling to the ego. We might want reliability in the world of people and things. But in terms of Dhamma, I think it's incredibly helpful to keep recollecting that's how it seems to me. Particularly in terms of human relationships, living in community, working in a group, working in a medical field, in spiritual field, in the academic field, in the, in the business world, that my impression is this is good, rather than this is good. As far as I can tell, this looks like a bad direction to go, rather than this is a bad direction to go that this is how it looks from my perspective. Or, or when you came into the room, I felt that you were angry with me, rather than, you're angry with me. You just walked in the room and, and you were angry with me straight away. So, now, I had the feeling that you were. He said, no, 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 I was just rushing to the bathroom. You know, <laughs> I didn't even see it was you. You're just a thing in the way while I was rushing through the room. So there's, again, real world consequences of learning how to not take our perceptions Seriously, so rather than being unsettling or upsetting, it is, but only to the ego, to the self-view. To the jitter itself, it's like, well, of course, <laughs> perceptions are unreliable. And these ways of actually consciously cultivating the sense of unreliability is helpful. Uh, Ajahn Chah would call it the pathway of the noble ones. Not sure. <laughs> to have that little sort of filter on our judgments Again, it makes the world a lot more spacious and useful. So I want to see the world now, how it is now. The only real present reality is the Dhamma itself, the timeless, which is not a perception. <laughs> Any more questions? I have two questions. First is, uh, just a few months ago, you could put the I, I've got it introduced to uh, Buddhism. And the first teaching that I, I got through was Mahayana's teaching on emptiness. And then I've come across some other teachings as well of Theravada. So I want to understand from your point of view, how does one look at the second turning of the wheel, the third turning of the wheel? And uh, there is a difference between how they approach Buddhism, these two schools. 
Well, in a Theravada world, there's no such thing as the second turning of the wheel or the third turning of the wheel. It doesn't exist. The terminologies come from the northern Buddhist world. So um, it just so happens <laughs> that uh, somebody also asked me about this, and uh, uh, I wouldn't have been sure otherwise. So the first turning of the wheel is suffering. second turning of the wheel relates to emptiness. And the third turning of the wheel re refers to Buddha nature. So all of those are just in the one turning of the wheel in terms of Theravada. Depends how you look at it. The other day was a question about dukkha. Is there really any dukkha? And they say, well, actually, there is no dukkha. Just that from our starting point, it seems that the suffering is real. But it's a noble truth, not an absolute truth. So the first turning of the wheel, I guess, in that respect, would be like, that's the, the initial impression is that there is dukkha. And then as the mind develops greater quality of wisdom, realizing, well, this is just the impression of uh, the impact of things. If there's no ignorance, if the mind is, is awake and clear, then there is no dukkha. The empty nature of all things is understood. But it's not really divided in any kind of fixed way in the Theravada scriptures. So it's just one way or the It is this a division between a sort of worldly perspective and a transcendent perspective is spelled out I think it's in the Chatura Disaka Sutta. It's called The Great Forty. It's one of the discourses in the middle-length discourses. I think it's Sutta number 117, but I couldn't swear to that. It's called The Great Forty, and it talks about the, the mundane eightfold path and the supramundane eightfold path. So the mundane eightfold path is like, I am developing right view, I am developing right resolution, I am developing... Uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood. I am developing right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. It's worldly. It's the, the work is being done, but it's being done on the basis of self-view and, and attachment. Then there is the supramundane eightfold path, which would be, through, I guess, relating to emptiness, is that, yeah, right view has been developed, uh, your right resolution, right, uh, right speech, right action, right, right livelihood, and so on. But there isn't a sense of self there isn't an I or a me or mine involved in the, in the development uh, of that path, of the application of that effort. Buddha nature, again, the term doesn't exist in the, in the Theravada world in those terms, and so different people will interpret it in different ways. But uh, what I've been saying about, say, the forest ajans in Thailand would very often, like, like Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Mahabur, Ajahn, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, uh, these great ajans uh, would talk about the Buddha refuge. It's not Gautama Buddha who lived two and a half thousand years ago, and not kind of or any sort of cosmic Buddha that's off in some other realm, having a, an influence uh, from some other dimension. But rather, the the Buddha that's a refuge is the wisdom of your own jitta, your own heart. And they sometimes sound a bit heretical when speaking in that way. And, but that, you know, Ajahn Chah would spell it out. Like, you know, the Buddha who was, a, who was in the world two and a half thousand years ago, he's gone. He's not around. <laughs> when we say Buddhang Saranangachami, the real refuge, the active, live place of safety for, for you now, <laughs> it's not a statue, it's not a memory, it's not an idea, it's not a, another entity somewhere else. It's the wisdom of your own heart. That's the the uh, awake aware quality of your own heart that's the safe place and so that's quite a common teaching within the forest tradition that uh, the buddha refuge as the awareness the puru in thai language that which is aware that which knows is the refuge so you could call that buddha nature i, I know other 
Theravada teachers that quail at the, no, 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 Buddha nature is totally, is a Mahayanist wrong view and it's completely deluded and that's not what we, we mean. To me, it's pretty close to um, my contact with the Northern Buddhist tradition and then uh, books that are also on this subject, like uh, Lama Surya Das uh, did a book called The Buddha Within, I think. And then Shen Pen Hukum also did her, her doctorate at Oxford University on the same area, on the Tathagata Garba, you know, Buddha nature. Reading some of those, those books and, and knowing some of those people, having conversations, to me, it's pretty close, even though some of my respected <laughs> Theravada companions think, that's totally different, uh, wrong view. To me, it's pretty close. So the Buddha nature, uh, you don't find that terminology, like you don't find the terminology of the three turnings of the wheel, that doesn't exist in the, the Pali literature at all, to my knowledge, certainly. And I've been in this more than 40 years, so <laughs> uh, I haven't come across that at all in the Pali. Um, so Buddha nature doesn't really exist as a term in the Pali, but when they talk about Puru, the, the one who knows, or that, that which is aware as a refuge, then and that being an attribute of your own, uh, the, your own citta, seems very, very close to what people are talking about in terms of uh, Buddha nature. Yesterday we were talking about bodhicitta. Bodhi means enlightenment, and citta means the heart or the mind. In the northern Buddhist world, it doesn't just mean the enlightened mind. It specifically means the mind which is intent on, say, the development of the path towards Buddhahood. And so like the, uh, the bodhisattva path and the realization of, of Buddhahood. So even though bodhicitta itself just means enlightened mind, its meaning has been crafted in the northern Buddhist world for that particular kind of narrower, specific purpose. I hope that clarifies things. Since you've only got interested in Buddhism two months ago, it probably is a bit more information than you need. <laughs> but... Uh, I had another quick question. Yeah. So you mentioned Buddha did go through two teachers. The second one, he reached neither perception nor non-perception, where he wasn't very satisfied with it. And then he continued. Then there was a day where he remembered him uh, sitting under a tree for the festival with his father. Yes. And he was concentrated. So I'm trying to understand what was the difference between the concentration that was there when he reached neither perception or non-perception and what was the concentration that, is, uh, that he took on after he got that picture of the apple tree? Yeah, good question. The, the implication is that with, when he was studying with those two teachers, Udaka Ramaputta and the, his other teacher, they were very much practicing austerities. So it was a life of, of advanced asceticism. The way of life sort of in those spiritual groups was a great deal of physical pain and austerity and, and hardship that contributed to their way of life and then the meditation practice was a part of that and so the insight that he had was remembering him as a little boy sitting under the jambu, the, the rose apple tree it's not so that he had a, the same sort of formless jhana it, it doesn't really specify it but the implication is it was like you know say first second or third jhana fourth jhana kind of his mind was very peaceful very concentrated as a, as a small child and he realized i wasn't starving myself i wasn't experiencing pain it was just the mind focused and it was very pure and simple and 
there was a quality of wholesomeness and it, it didn't involve austerity or discomfort or pain at all. Oh, that was kind of the key piece of it. So it wasn't really the depth of the concentration, I would say, that was the key piece. It was the fact that he didn't have to be starving the body or enduring these kind of painful austerities. He suddenly realized, oh, all that stuff is totally extra. You can have a concentrated mind that is really sort of pure and focused with a body that's quite well-fed and comfortable. Oh, oh. <laughs> and so then that was the, the key piece. He then left his friends who were practicing the austerities and they thought he, he'd given up. So that's how I understand it. Okay, so uh, let's draw things to a close there.